Welcome back to the Brutheology Podcast. This episode was recorded in February of 2020. Okay, listeners, welcome back to the Brutheology Podcast tonight. Janelle and I are with Heather, and we are going to have a conversation with our new friend, Dr. Eric Smith, from the Isla School of Theology, where he is professor, assistant teacher of New Testament and early Christianity. Also, a minister, a reverend, if you will. Let's call him Rev tonight. That's more fun than doctor. Uh, Dr. Rev. Doc, Dr. Rev. Yeah. Rev Doc. Doctor goes before reverend. Right. right. They say reverend yeah. comes first. So oh, does reverend it, doctor. Doctor is a noun and reverend is an adjective. So there we go. Gotta go reverend doctor. All right. So they say. We don't have to listen to what they say. Who knew? Does uh, your TARDIS have stained glass windows? I'm a lot of kinds of nerdy, but I'm not that kind of nerdy. <laughs> okay. Your so, Millennium Falcon? Yes, it right. does. Stained glass. All right. So Eric is with the First Plymouth Congregational Church in Inglewood. If you're around the Mile High City, it's Inglehood. And if you're ever in the area, go on a Sunday. Check it out. Come on by. Or if you're in the DU area, which is a great area of town, I might add, go to Iliff and sit in on a class. Can people do that? Is that a thing? Sure. No one's going to stop you. <laughs> yeah, Although it, most of our classes are online these days, so... You can sit there, but you might not get much out of it. So we, uh, we've we always been a fan of our ILIF friends who've come to the Ruth Theology Podcast. And so if you like this episode already, because you're like, well, an ILIF person is speaking, then you should already go to, I- just pause it, go to iTunes and already rate it, already review it, share it on the line. And then we're at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook, Brew underscore on Twitter, and then you can find all the information you need on the website at brewtheology.org. All right. Heather, you ready to rock and roll? Ready. Here we go. So um, typically what we like to do with all of our guests and just anybody who's on the podcast during our conversation, just like our tables in Denver, is we like to ask people their basic religious heritage, background, spiritual pedigree, and then where they would affiliate, if anything, today. And then how about favorite, if you could, if you could do this, if you could pair your favorite theologian with your favorite beverage, who would that be? What beverage would that be? We should ask that one more. Yeah, we should. That's a good one. And you can think on that one if you need to, but a little, a little bit of a background of young Eric growing up in the Carolinas. Wow. That's a lot of questions all at once. Um, and it, there's a lot swirling in my head about beverages and theologians, but, um, yeah. Uh, so I grew up in very rural North Carolina. And um, didn't really grow up going to church, although I grew up across the street, like literally in the shadow of a Southern Baptist church. And uh, so I would go across the street to uh, mission friends on Wednesday evenings. And some of you will know uh, exactly what that was like. It was a good time and there were good folks in that church. And I was the kid who would sort of beg to go to church and get myself dressed. And um, just I was really into it um, from a very young age. When I was in uh, grade school, I guess, I had a friend whose father was a pastor in town, and he invited me to church, so I went. And it was a Christian Church Disciples of Christ congregation. And I ended up uh, becoming a part of that church, and my whole family ended up becoming a part of that church, and we were baptized there, and it was really uh, a wonderful place to be a part of. As a teenager then, I became very involved in evangelical subculture, um, I worked for a while for a very prominent evangelist in his organization and um, in, in a summer camp in a retreat center, and I really loved that. But always felt a little bit like a fish out of water there. I found myself getting in arguments um, 
kind of for fun, but kind of because I was always a little bit uneasy with some of the answers. I remember having um, an argument with some folks about whether Jewish people go to heaven, and I was arguing, yes, of course they do, and others were arguing no. And turns out, you know, 25 years later, I have this book about essentially uh, (laughs) Judaism and Christianity and their relationship, and you can kind of see uh, the trajectory of your life sometimes if you pay attention early on. So I spent a lot of time in that um, in that world, I guess, and really got a lot of really valuable things out of it. But as I was um, in college, I went to, a, at the time, Southern Baptist College, Mars Hill College, now Mars Hill University, and now it's not any longer um, affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, but it's still very Baptist. But as I was there, I was uh, minoring in religion and um, taking religion classes and really just enjoying that time and enjoying the freedom to kind of ask some questions and to stretch my legs a little bit with um, some of the things I've been wondering about for a long time. And that's where I encountered some of the theologians that are rattling around in my head right now, actually, uh, in answer to your other question. So um, following college, you know, I had all these questions that I had asked but hadn't found any answers to, which is actually how it turns out to be for me a lot of the time. And I graduated, didn't quite know what to do. So I thought, well, Let's go answer some of these questions. Ended up at Vanderbilt Divinity School, where I did a Master of Theological Studies. And as a part of that, never never had any intention whatsoever of going into congregational ministry, but I ended up doing that anyway, sort of in spite of myself. Worked in a Methodist church for five years, um, and then came out to Denver to pursue a PhD in, uh, in religious studies. Ended up focusing in New Testament, and kind of the rest is history. In, t- in terms of thinking about... Um, theologians. I'm not a theologian, really, but I do admire some theologians. And I'm thinking about my roots in North Carolina, and I think I would have to choose, I have to start with the drink. My favorite beer is a beer called Cold Mountain, and it's a seasonal beer from Highland Brewing in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, it's wonderful. I have some um, I have some in my fridge right now that I brought back from North Carolina uh, by car. And um, I think I would have to pair that with someone like Sally McFaig. I think Sally McFaig would be nice. the, the right pairing for that beer. So that's, yeah, I think it would go well with some Sally McFaig, who just recently passed away, unfortunately. But I missed her by one semester at Vanderbilt. I wish I had a chance to take some classes with her. Very cool. And if you're ever in the Asheville area, I highly recommend just walking around. <laughs> Yeah, all of it. I mean, it, what's great about Asheville is Eric knows, and you've been to Asheville before? Yeah, we, so all of us have been to Asheville, is that you can walk around and drink beer all day. You don't have to get in your car or take a light rail. It's just no. it's there. I have a friend who messaged me on Facebook today because I used to live in Asheville, wanting to know if I knew anyone she could give two tickets to see Amanda Shires at the Orange Peel. And I was like, can I, can I get on a plane in time? to end up in Asheville by the time the show starts. And I could not, but it's a great town. Great beer. I could live there. Yeah. It was really fun. Food's good too. Yes. So do you happen to know Joshua Smith? The ILF DU? Yes, Yes, I do know Joshua Smith. All right. So we went to church together for a while and we're friends. So right on. Just curious. So on this podcast, we are talking about the Bible, immigration and government. And I know Eric specifically is a new Testament theologian and we will touch on the new testament specifically romans 13 at some point tonight but a lot of the work that you brought to the pub and our our crew last week was the hebrew bible the old testament this almost this grand narrative if you will or themes throughout it and so 
I guess, yeah, first off, because since we're going to dig into the Bible, how's everybody doing with the Bible these days around the table? <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Like, let's be honest about this before we start, because I feel like the, the listeners, too, are probably hot and cold and mostly lukewarm. And, you know, they're thinking God's going to spit them out of their mouth or whatever. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? People have a relationship with the Bible, whether it was early on or clearly today in the 21st century. It's doing something to them. So I, I did some cleaning recently, and I have a couple Bibles that are moving upstairs to the library, including the new volume by N.T. Wright on Paul Romans. I don't remember exactly. That's how tuned in I am. I ordered it, but I wouldn't say that I really do much with the Bible right now. Heather, you a Bible thumper? You're a Methodist over there, so probably not. That's My a little, little joke, a little Methodist is, joke. My Bible knowledge is to be expected. <laughs> Um, I mean, I studied the Bible in college and, um, I don't know. I think there's really interesting things in there. I think the most interesting part of the Bible to me is just the way that it was edited and looking back at the history of how it came to be rather than looking at it literally, which I mean, I'm Methodist, so that should go without saying, I don't, I don't believe in the inerrant word of the Bible, but you know, the, uh, the main idea is certainly important. That's how we all got here, I think. Yeah, I was talking to a friend just a couple of days ago about stories and religion. Specifically, I, w- I had the Bible in mind based on just kind of what Eric had just brought to the table last week. And so that was, since that was fresh and because I grew up Southern Baptist and it was beat into us, like in, in a, I don't want to say gentle way, but in a very intense way. Intense, yeah. Was, yeah, and so... Then, then, of course, going to seminary and after that, unpacking a lot of that and then really appreciating the context behind it. I was trying to convince my friend who's not religious at all that, that there's a power in a story, that there's something about regardless if you believe in all the details if it actually happened this way or not. Like to me, that's not important. It's what does the story do to a tribe, a people, a nation. Right. And so I finally got him to agree with me there. But he was still like wanting even after that, to dismiss the fact that anyone needs religion or the Bible to then be a good person. So it was one of those things where I'm like, man, I thought I was going to convince him, but he was like, yeah, that's fine. You can, but a story is a story. So what, why is the Bible more important than these other stories or the story that we actually live today? So Eric, um, you love the Bible. You, you, you teach it. This is your thing. Yeah. You know, there's this great metaphor. I think it comes from Jonathan Z. Smith, who's a religion scholar. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have that right. But there's this metaphor that I like to think about the Bible with, which is, you know, that the world is full of edible things, but we don't eat most of them. We so the world's full of stories, but most of them are not ours. And within the world of edible things, we choose things that we think of as food. So like your cat is edible, but you're not going to eat your cat. Right. You you limit the category of food to certain kinds of things. Um, You're you're like spouse is edible. You're not going to eat your spouse. I hope. Please don't do that. But. Once we've limited the world of edible things to food, that's when it gets interesting, right? Once, once you claim what's food, and most of us only eat like, you know, 20 or 30 things on some rotating basis. We eat beans and rice and chicken and, um, you know, wheat or whatever. We tacos and tacos and tacos. Tacos but and tequila. Within, you got lots of options within tacos. You know, you can, you can really get crazy. And that's the point, actually, is once you have limited the world of edible things to a category you call food, that's when the creativity starts. And it, it, you know, it might be interesting to try to eat everything in the world that's edible, but it's actually more interesting, I think, to start with a limited repertoire 
and make a thousand different things out of these 20 or 30 ingredients. To me, that's kind of how the Bible is. Um, you know, there are lots of other books. There's lots of other stories, and a lot of them are really great, and they're fun to try. But there's something powerful about having a collection of stories that belongs to you and to your people and to your past and your experience and spending time with those things and thinking about those stories and recombining them and, and figuring out how they are still relevant and how they remind you of something from a long time ago. And it's, it's just a really powerful experience, I think. So that's what I love about the Bible. I don't always like the way it tastes to stretch the metaphor a little bit. Um, and, and sometimes it's not something I want anymore, but it's always an act of creativity to go and read the Bible. So why, why the Bible when it comes to this topic of, of immigration? Why? I mean, this, this clearly is a very specific thesis of, of the, you know, where you're headed. And you've probably talked about this at length in other I don't know, classrooms or even in, from the pulpit. But I mean, I think it's one of your questions on here was, should the Bible even be a part of our national debate about immigration at all? We might be jumping the gun, but in order for you know, people in the 21st century who have these you know, very modern, like, oh, the Bible is ancient. It's a great story, but I go, what, is, what does this have anything to do with, with our conversations and the debate that we have about immigration today? Well, so I started talking about this um, a couple years ago, really, as uh, because, because I teach in a seminary and because I am myself a, a minister, I have like, you know, half my Facebook friends are ministers or otherwise like very involved kind of religious folks. And people were really worked up about the state of the immigration debate in the country, as and lots of non-religious people are as well. But I was kind of seeing all this anxiety about the way we were talking about immigration. And so I put out there one day on Facebook, hey, if anyone wants to talk about this, um, I'd be willing to come and like do a talk at your church. And so I had, I don't know, half a dozen people take me up on that and ended up spending a lot of the summer, I guess, of 2018 um, just going around to churches, actually, usually by video, and kind of having conversations about if we are going to start from a place of thinking the Bible has something to say about this, what, what would it say about immigration? What are the, the themes you see in the Bible about immigration? And therefore, as a community of Christian people or uh, as people who find some authority in this text, what, what should we take from it? And it was liberating, I think, for a lot of these people to think about the Bible that way because we have this tendency to get caught in this or that kind of political discourse in our country. Um, actually, you mentioned the date. Tonight is the New Hampshire primary, right? So all sorts of political discourse flying mm -hmm. around. We have a tendency to talk about things that way. Chances are, whatever you believe about immigration comes out of whatever position your party affiliation says you should have, right? But I think it's an interesting question to take a step back and ask, how is this story playing out in our sacred text? How does this story play out in the history of this, these people that we claim to be a part of somehow? How has it lived out, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago? And that to me is a really different question than what's the legislation my party wants to get passed on yeah. this question. Yeah. So I started going around talking to churches about that. And, and um, I think it's a powerful thing to, to talk about in a community of faith, just what do our sacred texts have to say about this? I'm not one of these people that thinks the Bible has an answer for everything in modern life. It's not like a index of, you know, look up your problem and it's there. But it turns out there is a lot in there about this topic. And that's probably where it does get complicated is that yeah, people want to copy paste and you can't do that. But you can take the values, the ethics, and then what, so what is the, the, the theos? What is the God in this story speaking to the people and does that translate today? 
And that's where I think it gets super awkward and icky for people of faith. Because mm-hmm. clearly we're a divided country right now. Well, what I think is really interesting is that there's pretty much two sides to the the story of immigration today. And when I say that, I'm talking about what's going on at the southern border with the family separation. And what I think is really interesting is that people who consider themselves secular and non-religious seem to very clearly see the matter as as one way as, you know, just that this is against morality and just completely wrong. And it seems like the people that are most on the side of being for the the treatment that's actually going on right now are more conservative. And also that oftentimes means that they are people of faith, at least in name. And for me, I, I know a lot of those people. And I I know a lot of them that are personally horrified by what's going on and standing up for what they see as right, which is basically information that's coming from the Bible, right? And for me, it's really easy to reconcile reconcile all of that because it's not in conflict. But what happens when you have somebody who still considers themselves a person of the Bible, but is also for family separation? I think the conversation that you're having and the the tools that you're providing are really useful because for me at least it helps me have that conversation, you know, being a Methodist, not not being somebody who's, you know, I I know the themes and I know the main stories, but like can I go to the Bible and point to XYZ the the different passages? I can't do that, but there are people who talk in that language. And if you're trying to actually have a conversation where they're going to listen, you have to be speaking the same language. And if I, my interest is getting them to change their mind, it's in my best interest to speak their language. Yeah. I think that's so important and learning to speak the Bible to people who are using the Bible all the time. Yeah. And then just not, not, not in a snarky kind of sitting way, but unveil some context as you, quote them literal scripture in English. Yeah, and I mean, I I don't mean to be doing this in a patronizing way at all. No, no, I'm, I, I know, I know. I'm I, being completely authentic in, in the sense that, you know, you believe these things, or at least you claim that you do, and let's talk about it. Yeah, I, I 110% agree. So do you want to talk specifically about, like, the trajectory of the story, starting with this wandering Aramean? Go from there. Um, well, I actually had something pop in my head that didn't on Thursday was, so when the Israelites are stuck for 40 years on the border of Canaan, like, that's kind of related to what's going on in some way, isn't it? That's that's a fascinating juxtaposition there, right? That they're, um, they are in this sort of marginal space of neither here nor there. They're not, um, they haven't made it yet, but they're also where they used to be. And there's this great line. It says, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but it says something like, were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to just die there? Why did you yeah. have to bring us here to this place? You know, And um, I, I think there's, that's probably an experience common to lots of different groups of people who have, who for whatever reason have moved from one place to another, is that feeling of placelessness yeah. and that feeling of not belonging and being stuck between, right? And in the case of the Israelites, that's a story that that was on the way toward liberation. And I think for people who end up at the United States southern border, often they're seeking liberation. They're seeking economic liberation or liberation from violence, 
of one kind or another. And what what worries me as a person of faith is that it's being this this sort of middleness or this lack of belonging or this stuckness is being inflicted in my name and with my tax dollars and um, and you know on behalf of me somehow. And that I wish that weren't the case, and I, I I hope it doesn't stay the case for long. What what I hope is also the case is that this story of liberation of moving from one place to another. Yes, you get stuck in the middle, but but hopefully you get there in the end, right? That, that right. The, the narrative of Exodus is one ultimately of of liberation, and I hope that's the case for our own context. Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, thing to put in conversation, though. Because they were there for 40 years and, and God did provide food and water and shelter for them, which we are not doing in many ways, but 40 years of being in that space. And I can't, I can't imagine. And it was hot. And it was hot. I mean, there's with kids running around and not a lot of plumbing, not a lot of resources. Zero plumbing. I can't. That's the stuff. When I when I start looking, this is my rabbit trail hole. But when I, when I read the text in Leviticus and I'm looking at all the blood and I'm looking at where they're at when all this is going down, I'm like, man, this is like, where's the water? And then you're gonna waste the water, you know? <laughs> so I'm just trying to be practical here. But yeah. so where do you? But where do you start this story? Do you start it with the wandering Aramean? Do you start it with uh, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery? Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, because I think both parts are important, but. I mean, clearly there's linear story where there's the wondering dude. And then there's, as a people, remember, I brought you out. Remember that you were slaves. Yeah. And I would even start like a half a story earlier than that. Right. So Genesis, there's kind of two parts to Genesis. Genesis one through 11, sometimes scholars call the primeval history. And that's the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel. It's the Tower of Babel. It's uh, Noah's Ark. It's this stuff that... um, isn't really meant to be thought of as a particular place in time, but it's meant to be kind of universal for everyone always. But then starting in chapter 12, you do start to get the story of these particular people, this particular family. So that's kind of where I would start and, and say, you know, here we have this deity who in the NRSV is called the Lord. And this deity appears to this guy, Abram, and says, look, I'd like for you to pick up all your stuff and move and, you know, move from Ur over to to this land that I have in mind for you. And so the story becomes one of this person and uh, Abram and his spouse, Sarai, and who we come to know as Abraham and Sarah, and their descendants and their relationship with this land, which is complicated. The, the relationship with the land is complicated. And we should pause to say this land was not vacant. Um, there were people there. And that was true in Abram's time, and it was true later on in the period of the Exodus that we've been talking about. And, and so uh, that's a, another maybe conversation about what it means to be promised land that belongs to someone else. All of us who are sitting in Denver, Colorado right now are engaged in that conversation. On the land of the Ute and the Arapaho and others. That's right. Yeah. But the, the biblical narrative has, has this family go and they settle in this land, and they're always kind of aliens in it. And so you do get that um, that that wonderful verse of uh, being a wandering Aramean that I'm I'm on the move. I have no home. I'm not. I'm placeless. I don't really have a, a home that I can call home. And then a lot of the rest of Genesis is the the story of God's promise to this family, to these people, and the threats to that promise. 
And the, the best example of this, I think, comes in Genesis 37 with the story of uh, Joseph, who is, you know, an heir to the promise. He's, he's supposed to get this land in the same way that the rest of his family is. But then his brothers, it's, you know, you know the story, uh, the Technicolor dream, dream coat and all that. His brothers sell him out, and so he ends up in Egypt in, in servitude, and he, through kind of his own talent and skill, rises to the top of the government system in Egypt. And that turns out, so it, it feels um, like a threat, right? It feels like a threat to this promise that God has made, that this is not going to work out the way God had said it would. But it turns out that it does because a famine comes and Joseph is in a position to help his kin when, when they need it. So that, though, is how these people get into Egypt in the first place. There, a Pharaoh arises who did not remember Joseph or did not know Joseph. And the people end up enslaved in Egypt. And we, we know this from... You know, the Prince of Egypt, of course, is where most of, of our biblical literacy on this matter comes from. And there's a Pharaoh, you know, who is not willing to let the people go. And there's Moses who says, let my people go. And there's um, kind of a cosmic battle. And the people uh, in the Exodus leave Egypt and make their way into the wilderness, which is what we were just talking about. In the wilderness, then, there's this, there's this moment and we uh, often think about this as the moment of the institution of the Ten Commandments. And this is in Exodus chapter 20. There's a couple other places this appears in the Hebrew Bible as well. But in Exodus chapter 20, there's this moment of covenant, right, where these people who have been brought out of Egypt by this deity, they're, they're undergoing a covenant. They're entering into this covenant together with God. And we know it because of the Ten Commandments, but the way the covenant starts is... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So we know you shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. But the preamble to that, the terms of this covenant are, we're in this covenant because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, all the things that proceed, all the, the covenantal forms, all the laws, all the relationship that God has with these people derives from this experience of having been strangers and estranged from their, their land and seeing the threat to the promise and, and being aliens in a foreign land. Therefore, the Ten Commandments. Therefore, these are the ethical prescriptions that I'm going to lay over your lives. And that narrative continues throughout the Hebrew Bible. You see it everywhere in the Hebrew Bible, in the prophets, um, in in. Um, especially in the prophets, in the Psalms, you see it all over the place. This, because you were strangers in Egypt and I brought you out, therefore act this way toward the alien in the land. The alien in the land should, should be uh, as if they were an Israelite. The alien in the land should have an inheritance among you. You should provide for the alien um, or the foreigner, as some, some translations say it. So it's, it's, it's a story, right, that starts off as a particular story of this family, but it turns into this ethic that because you were once in their shoes, you should be kind to these people. Because you were once one of these folks who were placeless and, and without a home, therefore you should think differently when you encounter someone in that circumstance. And that's even to the point of including them in their feasts and their Sabbath festivals and all that as well. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I, because clearly I wasn't born around that time and don't understand that world, was that a very intimate thing like table fellowship to include a foreigner, uh, an alien in, in your festivals or cause I think today we think of like more proselytizing. Yeah, come, come do my thing. So you can be a part of my mm-hmm. club. Whereas this, this might've been, I don't know more because your family. 
I'm not sure, honestly, but there are lots of places where it's clear that you're supposed to provide food for, like, um, you know, leave, leave food over after your harvest, leave, leave something for these folks. So not everyone has a field in your field. You should leave the remnants for someone who doesn't have one. So I think it is, I don't think it's proselytizing. Um, they Jews and Israelites never really right. uh, cared that much about that, but it is concern for someone who doesn't have something that you do. And you, you mentioned also, uh, Ruth speaking, speaking of a foreigner, a Moabite last week as well, which is a great story. And you know, I don't know, most people either that if they've read it, they sort of, it's just one of those stories that's just over here, but it's, it's a critical story, especially if people ever read the genealogy in Matthew. That's right. The genealogy in Matthew, in my opinion, is the most egregiously overlooked passage in the New Testament. Um, it's marvelous because there's there's a bunch in there that is really unexpected. And it's really, in my opinion, functions as kind of a, a salvation history through the lens of including people who are not Israelites. So if you go to Matthew 1.1... 1, 1, um, you know, if you if you ever try to read through the New Testament, if you start in Matthew one one, you'll encounter sort of this block of names. And probably if you were anything like me when I was a you know younger person, I I just buzzed right through that. I had no interest whatsoever in reading this long list of names, many of which are unpronounceable. But if you look closely at it, you know there are some ways that this genealogy is a lot like genealogies you'd find elsewhere, like in Numbers. But there are other ways that this genealogy is somewhat atypical. And the really remarkable way is that it includes these five women. And, and it wasn't really normative for women to be included in genealogies. And you'll notice even in this one, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, that most of the people in this genealogy are men. But it does include these five women. So you get, for example... Tamar in verse 3, you get Rahab in verse 5, you get Ruth in verse 5, you get uh, the wife of Uriah, who we know is Bathsheba in verse 6, and then of course you get Mary in verse 16. So there is this. there are these women included who, by sort of the normal rules of a genealogy, shouldn't be there. And it turns out that these are women who, through kind of the initiative that they took because of the desperation of their circumstances, did something, took action that led to the furtherance of this line that culminates in this guy, Jesus. So really the argument Matthew's genealogy is making is we have Jesus because of these people. And by the way, the actions of these five women, my New Testament professor in my master's degree was Amy Jill Levine, who is wonderful as a human being and as a Bible scholar. And she would often say, she would often point out that these five women share a trait. And I will never forget the phrase she used. The trait that they share is that they have obstetrical irregularities, which is um, just a delightful phrase, in my opinion. So Tamar, for example, in verse three, her husband has died and she has been entered into a leveret marriage where her, her brother-in-law is supposed to impregnate her, but Onan, who is the brother-in-law, doesn't go through with it. And so she's in a kind of helpless situation where she's by law kind of been abandoned and doesn't have any recourse. She takes things into her own hands, dresses up, seduces her father-in-law, which is, you know, maybe not behavior that, that we would um, lift up as something to emulate, but it's what ends up, you know, generations down the line producing Jesus. Rahab likewise is uh, a Canaanite. Oh, and by the way, Tamar was uh, not an Israelite and she was a Gentile and did that. Rahab, also not an Israelite. She's a Canaanite. She is a sex worker. 
and uh, kind of serves as a spy for the Israelites as they're on their way into Canaan. Ruth, in verse 5, also not an Israelite. She's a, a, a Gentile. Of course, uh, probably the best known story, as you're pointing out, that Ruth ends up seducing her kinsman, Boaz, in one of the, the more delightful euphemisms in the Bible by uncovering his feet. That's uh, how she pulled it off. And then uh, next time you uncover somebody's feet, yeah, just saying there's it, more to it. You got to watch it. You might end up married. Um, and then, of course, Bathsheba in verse six is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So they're also not Israelites. And that song by Leonard Cohen has sort of made this story into this really sweet romantic tale. But it's it's probably not really. It's probably the story of a, a, a monarch sort of leveraging his power to get what he wants. And that, too, then, is sort of an irregular way to produce a child by someone else's wife. And it includes murder along the way. And, of course, Mary, at the end of the line, uh, as far as we know, is not a Gentile, but does have this obstetrical irregularity of a virgin birth. So there, I think, in that genealogy, which you might not pay much attention to, turns out to be kind of a deeply theological narrative about how actions through time have served to result in this guy, Jesus, and the birth of what Matthew is claiming is the Messiah. But it's also not just any people, it's women, and it's not just any women, it's Gentile women. They're contributing to this lineage of Jesus in really unexpected, unconventional kinds of ways. And it's a powerful narrative, I think, because these are people who by all rights should not be in this story at all. They're people who, by the customs of the way these kind of texts are written, should not be in anybody's genealogy. And yet here they are in the genealogy of this person that Matthew wants you to believe is the Messiah. That's really powerful, I think. So our, our country is a country that's, uh, we, we swear men and women an oath, an office. You know, judges do this, right, with on, on their hand on a Bible. So the Bible... It could mean nothing to people, but for the most part, it's supposed to mean something, even if it's a symbolic something. And Jeff Sessions used the Bible. Trump occasionally used the Bible, but he misquotes it. Every president has used the Bible to some degree. Now, you, you could say our country is not a biblically-based country. It's not really, it doesn't have the Judeo-Christian values that, that we, we think it does. But at the same time, there's, I don't know, there's something to be said about like that. That seems to be the narrative that, that we want to claim. Even in some ways, agnostics kind of claim it as theirs as well in some weird way. So, so here we are. We have all these Hebrew scriptures. We have Jesus' genealogy. Um, we have Paul. And all that's great. But what do we, how do we reconcile all that today with what's going on when there are, what, 55 million plus displaced people across the world? And there's caravans that are coming from the global south and rushing up right on our borders and we're separating families so and many of these are also they are climate refugees which has to be included in this story like that's not for the future that's not five years from now that's happening now that it's intermingled it's not just one problem yeah you and this is gosh there's there's so many i mean everything from violence to uh, sex trafficking to like all, all the issues that are creating i mean people don't just Right, they don't just run away from home. Who wants to run no. away from home unless there's actually a traumatic event that's happening? And and the Bible seems to clearly t- say, take take care of these people. I mean, take care of the alien, take care of the widow, the orphan, in their distress. Like that's a that is a commandment throughout Scripture. Yeah, because it used to be you, and it might be you again. 
It's not just because you want to be kind. It's because this is your story too. And that, that to me is pretty, that's a different thing than just saying be nice, right? It's, it's not only be nice, but, but be nice because someone was nice to you too. And Jesus was a migrant. I mean, I, I'm, maybe I should ask you if you feel that's a correct description. Um, but it seems like when he was moving around and running away from, you know, terrifying governments, that that is similar to what some people are experiencing now. Yeah, he's fleeing government violence. His family has to flee sort of, um, not imperial, but violence from Herod yeah. uh, because they were threatening to kill him. You know, in Matthew, that's <laughs> the story. That's what makes a refugee a refugee when they feel unsafe in their place and they need to go somewhere else. And in terms of America, we've signed agreements that refugees are allowed to come in, but we're not doing that. And, and our number went drastically down in the last... What, even since 2016, 18, mm-hmm. how many we would let in. I mean, the vetting yep. process has always been very, uh, you know, it's a very intense process. And I, you know, part of me gets some of that, but compared to other countries, like it takes forever to become yeah. a citizen, to be welcomed in and all that. Um, but then we, we've said, no, well, let's tighten that even more. Yeah. I have well, a friend. Sorry, go ahead. Excuse me. I mean, just, just about that, that, that is only about one thing, which is racism because, when you have an administration who has from day one say, said, um, well, if you are from XYZ countries and these countries happen to just be Muslim um, and you're not allowed to come here, even though there are very valid reasons that we we should want mo- most of these people to come here and not stay in the environment that they're in and be Recruited by ISIS or whatever the whatever it is they're trying to escape to me makes no sense. But it's it's not because Trump or the administration is doing this based on a religious motive. It's it's due to racism. I mean, we have to call it out because that's all it is. I think to be fair, Trump's phrase was shithole countries. Yeah. Right. Um, th- that's the heuristic he's employing. But um, but yeah, I, I agree. That's it seems to be that all the shithole countries are countries with black and brown people. And that's now the the filter that we're using for our immigration policy. Not to dump too much on Trump, but uh, it, that does seem to be kind of where things are. And Jesus was from one of these shithole countries. You yeah, know? he's one of the ones um that probably wouldn't get through the, the border today. So that's, that's really powerful, actually. We would not let him in. Yeah. Somebody would call him an anchor baby. Thanks so much for joining us for the Brew Theology Podcast. If you would like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at www.brewtheology.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and at Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.